2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 221 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al?
1: I'm fair to middling, Valerie. Thank you for asking.
2: fair to middling? Oh,
1: it's just where I'm at. I've got lots on my (laughs) plate, and I'm thinking about things, and I'm working on a new on a new book and I've got, you know, I'm just, I'm juggling, I'm juggling, I'm juggling things. And when you're juggling things, fair to middling is a really good place to be. How far into your new book? How far? How How far? far? Yeah. Well, I started, uh, and many of our listeners will know this because they are in, have been in the um, podcast community group or they have been, uh, following my pages and things like that. But I started a new edition of the write a book with Al challenge on February the 1st so I'm, you know, what, a week into it and I'm just um, I'm just in those early stages of trying to work out what's happening, which is takes up a lot of mind capacity, particularly mm. at a time when you're quite busy. So it's, um, yeah, so fair to middling. But as I said, when you're juggling stuff, fair to middling is a good spot to be. It's stable. You want to be stable okay, at a time. Okay, like,
2: stable is so, yeah. good. So good. Hash- hashtag write a book with Al. Can you just tell any new listeners what that might be? Oh, okay. So it's a very uh, haphazard, uh, unofficial
1: (laughs) (laughs) approach to motivation and inspiration. And it basically just means that on February the 1st, I started writing a new manuscript and it has a hashtag. Write a book with Al, and I invite people to write a book alongside me. So I post my word counts on my Facebook page at Alison Tate Writer is is the most consistent spot for this. Um, I post my uh, word counts on a daily basis, even if they are zero, and basically everybody posts their own word counts and we all cheer each other on because uh, we've talked before about the importance, I think, of accountability mm. in actually. Getting to the end of a manuscript, you know, telling people that you're doing it and um, taking responsibility for the fact that you need to get the words written. Uh, So that's basically what I've done. And we, we all sort of to help each other along to get the actual um, words down. So I'm only doing it, I think, for about four weeks. It'll only be till the end of February because um, mm-hmm. I'm aiming to write about 20,000, 25,000 words. So I am um, hoping to get that done by the end of this month. So that's my plan, my cunning plan.
2: And we'll so when you goes. post the book, when you post the word count, do you post it the next morning, like what you did the day before? When do you actually post it? No, I just it? post it on the day. I post it on the day. Depending yeah, but on, what if you, you know, finish at writing at 11 p.m. at night? That's when I post it. Oh, okay. So you just post it whenever you've done your session for the day. I just post it when I've done my session for the day. Yep. Mm. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm.
1: That's exciting. so there's no
2: consistency.
1: The, the only consistency is, is the hope that it will get done, not that yes. it will actually be done at a certain time or anything like that because I, it's, it's very, very difficult to timetable mm. um, on a daily basis like that. So like this morning, for example, I was done by 9.30, yeah. um, but most days it's much later in the afternoon or even early evening. Sometimes it, it is 11.59 p.m. So it just depends on how the day pans are because that's how people's days work. That's how writing works.
2: Yeah. Yes, definitely. Well, we want to give a shout out to Zalisma because Zalisma has kindly left us a review on iTunes titled Turning Point. And Zalisma says, I've been listening for the last three months and all I can say is, wow, I have never been drawn into a single podcast like this. It's taken me from a mere listener to participating in NanoRimo, and I've signed up for two online courses to further develop my own passion in writing. I actually have in my hand a draft manuscript wow all I can say is thank you ladies I look forward to what's in store for 2018 wow that's just cool that's brilliant fantastic well done congratulations Elizabeth that's so awesome yeah well done oh that's I I love hearing stories like that don't you
1: are you feeling tough I'm feeling kind of tough that we have somehow you know done enough cheerleading to get to the end of a manuscript. I'm really excited about that.
2: Yes, very chuffed. And if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Okay, so let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we? Let's do that. We have a question actually from the podcast Facebook group and if you haven't yet joined, join our listener community. It's absolutely free to join. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. So many writers from so many different walks of life but all with one thing in common and that is a passion or love for writing. Now Jasmine is in that podcast group and she has said, help, is there an episode about how you find your voice as a writer, or how to cope with the depressing feeling when an agently politely when an agent politely tells you just that? I have the huge opportunity to turn one of my journo stories into a book, a crime novel based on a true story. My first three chapters didn't blow the agent's socks off. <laughs> he likes the <sighs> plot though, <laughs> yeah, and says he can see my talent as a writer. He thinks my journo skills interfere with my fantasy for fiction writing. He think, um, uh, he wants me to go back to square one and try again before he decides if we move forward. I know I should focus on the positive things, but I suddenly feel like an imposter. Any advice how I can say, stay positive and productive? Wow. Well, Al, since you are a journo who has managed to master fiction writing, I feel you need to take this one. First
1: anyway. <laughs> Well, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I think it's some um, uh, and, and I did respond to Jasmine at the time that she put the question in the in the um, Facebook group um, to say that this is actually a, quite a common problem when you've come yes. from a, a journalism background or Very any common. other kind of writing background, whether it be copywriting, corporate writing, you know any other type of writing. And I think the first thing you have to do is, is acknowledge that writing fiction is a completely different craft to writing nonfiction. They are two things. You know, the the basic tenets of writing are there, but you're learning a whole new skill from scratch. And that was something that it took me quite a while to get my head around because I was a bit like, well, I can write and my sentences Mm. are awesome. And I don't really understand why you're not loving this as much as I am, because of Mm -hmm. course, you know, back (laughs) in those days, I thought I was pretty awesome. Oh, how naive I was. Um, but so you, you kind of, I think what you, um, what it comes down to with this whole business of finding your voice is that I think when you write for publications, I, I like to call these, um, like uh, we talked about this before, but you, you, journalism requires a broadcast voice. Um, So it's like you're writing for a publication which has its own style and then you're writing for readers of that publication who have an expectation of that particular style. Mm. So you're kind of like you're definitely in there but you're writing for a publication. Like it's very much a, this is, you know, because to get the job and the next commission, you need to fit within the actual boundaries of what that publication um, and its readers expect. So that's, that's one thing. So it's kind of like a broadcasting and I, I call it like an outside voice. It's like the voice that you shout. It's the voice that you use outside and it's the mm-hmm. voice that you use um when you're sort of like particularly when you start you know writing uh, as a journalist it's kind of like your i don't know it's your here's, here's my get paid voice if you know what i'm saying this is what i do now so yeah. there's there's that to to write fiction what you have to find is your inside voice you have to find the voice that is yours. So this is the voice. This is where you are writing. Obviously, you're writing crime fiction. So you are writing within a genre. You need to understand the rules and laws of that particular genre for a start. Um, mm. And, you know, we have some great courses that would help you to do that. So you need to think about what, you know, you need to read an awful lot of that stuff. You need to know what the, the expected structure of a crime novel is, for example, and all of that sort of stuff. But when it comes to actually the voice of it, you need to find your inside voice. You've got to find the voice that is actually essentially you, not you writing for Cleo or you writing for The Age or you writing, but you writing for you. And that's not an easy thing to do when you are so used to to actually filling the rules for other people. Um, so it's very, very important that you sort of start to try and work through some exercises and things to actually work out what it is that is your writing. How is your voice different to somebody else's voice? And my, my thinking on it is always, and I come back to this every single time we, we talk about this kind of stuff, but you basically got to look, you, you've got to write like you talk, only better. So you're writing the best possible version of the way that you talk. And it's one of those things where you don't even, once you kind of get there, once you find it, you don't even realize you're doing it. But I have friends who say to me that when they read my books, they can hear me even okay. though I'm writing about, you know, Quinn who's sailing around the world in a completely, you know, f- in fantastic world or, um, or Gabe who's, you know, sa- saving a book or whatever set in, completely other times to what, you know, we live in, uh, you know, 14-year-old boys as opposed to, mm. you know, 40-plus, <laughs> yes. you know, but they can hear my voice in the narration, the way that I think, the way that I put things together, that that kind of stuff. And that's what you need to tap into. And I always say that um, one of the things that really, really helped me to find that when I first started out with my fiction writing um, was blogging. And I know that that sounds like a really strange thing, but blogging was so useful to me because I was so used to writing something, getting feedback from an editor, making corrections, sending it off, and then never, ever hearing about it ever again. I mean, that's what happens when you write for magazines. It goes out into the ether and 12 months, uh, sorry, four weeks later, something new goes out there and it's not even, I mean, people pick it up in a doctor's waiting room 12 years later but you know at the end of the day no one's coming back to you on it you're not really getting a response but when I started blocking the thing that really shocked me about it was that you know people talked back they made comments mm. they told me what they liked about stuff they told me what they didn't and what I found was that the things that people responded to most were the posts where I was the most honest or where I was really kind of I found that in intimacy of voice so if you don't want to blog which is fine because you know not everyone does I was doing it every day at that point a a journal or something like that where you just sit down and write what's in your head will help Mm. you find that voice that you're looking for you've got to get out what's in your head not what you think people want to read but what's actually in your head
2: yep Makes so that really long. I hope (laughs) that was helpful. (laughs) That is fantastic advice, and I basically agree with it one hundred percent. And I think that you know, twenty years ago or whatever, when I was um, uh, deciding to explore the world of fiction, I was in a similar situation where I thought, oh, you know, I can. I can write. I don't need to learn this. I mean, not that I don't need to learn this, but I don't need to learn this from the basics. The biggest mistake that I made, biggest mistake was I thought, okay, well, I might need some guidance, but I don't need to start at the beginning because I'm already a professional writer. And the biggest mistake I made was I went into an intermediate course Mm. and uh, that was fine. It was still enjoyable. I got something out of it, but it wasn't till years after that, I finally did a foundation course, like an introductory course. And I mm-hmm. went, Oh my God, I wish I had done this first. I went straight into, uh, like, I remember going into intermediate and advanced kind of courses and, and it it wasn't, it, it was still interesting intellectually, of course, but it wasn't clicking for me because mm-hmm. I hadn't bothered to go And learn the fundamentals of fiction writing which are totally different as you said completely different craft Mm. non-fiction and journalism so it was only when I did the the introductory course and, and and more to the point you don't it's not I'm not saying hey go do courses I'm saying lose the idea that you are already a writer and think that you know you can just tackle it easily you, you mm. do kind of have to approach it from a very, very different viewpoint and, and I agree with Alison that blogging, even if you, and don't worry about building an audience, you, that's not what you're there for. You don't want to become an influencer. You don't want to become Roxy Jacenko or whatever. You're just blogging <sighs> purely for your own writing practice, even if not a single person reads it.
1: Hey, if they read is, it,
2: great, but you know. That
1: is so funny. I've just written a I, I didn't mention Rossi Jacinko, but I've just written a mm-hmm. blog post today about mm-hmm. my top three tips that I've learned from nine years of author blogging. Can we just have yeah. a moment to consider that? Nine years wow. of author blogging. So I've learned a few things along the way and one of those top those top. Tips. In fact, my first top tip is to work out why you're blogging, and it's that Mm -hmm. whole notion of: Are you blogging for traffic, or are you blogging Mm -hmm. for community, or are you blogging for practice, or you know, why are you actually doing this? And it actually took me, I reckon, five years to get to the bottom of what why I was doing it. I I was just doing it for ages because I liked it. It was fun, and it was you know whatever. And and it took me a really long time. And and as I talk about in this blog post, um, because I was blogging so frequently like I mean for the first couple of years there I was blogging daily and then I went back to three days a week because I'd realized that I'd written 350,000 words on my blog one year (laughs) 350,000 words let's just consider that for a minute that's like three full adult fiction manuscripts that were on my blog and so anyway but I was I was under this pressure of feeling like I had to blog and I had to do whatever and I put up a chicken soup recipe one day and um which was a very good recipe in my defense, Um, and our very good friend, Kerry Sackville, who is hilarious and has been Mm -hmm. blogging for a long time as well, sent me an email to ask me politely, very politely, what the heck, Mm -hmm. not as politely as that, Mm -hmm. that I thought I was doing. You are not a food blogger. You are an author. And I was like, you know what? You are so right. What am I doing here? Why am oh. I putting on chicken soup recipes? And I had to sit down and think about why I was blogging and what I wanted to do with my blog. And I made some changes. So, but it is a really important thing to think about because you're not, you know, people get so tied up with numbers and you know, yes. stats and traffic and and yeah. you've got to think about what you're doing there. And if 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 the only thing you ever get out of a blog is finding your voice as a writer. then I reckon you've won like really you have won. Yes
2: absolutely absolutely all right well let's move on to our next link and we just want to say a big congratulations to Sarah Krasnerstein no Krasnerstein I probably haven't pronounced it right Krasnerstein. No I think you haven't but I'm hoping that you've done (laughs) I'm hoping you've done enough for her to recognize herself. Uh, yes, who has taken out top honours of the 2018 Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, which means she takes home a hundred thousand dollars. Not bad, wow. huh? Well, actually, $100,000 for the Victorian Prize for Literature and the $25,000 category prize for nonfiction. So she now has $125,000 for her book, The Trauma Cleaner, which was the memoir about, um, I think it's Sandra Pankhurst. Yeah, Sandra Pankhurst, who is a trauma cleaner. So Mm. clearly it's worth, you know, $100,000. I'm not jealous at all. Not, at all. <laughs> not even vaguely. So good on her. That's, it. That's yeah, well really done. exciting. Um, moving on to something completely different, I found a link in Campaign Magazine and we can't participate in this but maybe one of our airlines will follow suit very soon. But in the UK, EasyJet, which is like the budget airline there, they're encouraging people to use their sick bags not to chuck up in but to write love poems on the back in the run up to Valentine's Day. And it's a competition. Cute, huh? And That's it's really cute. inspired. I don't know what British people do, but this campaign, it says this campaign, it's part of a competition that has been inspired by an increasing number of people travelling with the airline who have been leaving poems on the bags for the next passenger to find. <laughs> So what you need to do is write your poem on the sick bag then share an image of it it on Twitter or Instagram with uh, hashtag (laughs) lovesicksonnets. Oh, that's so cute. I love it. That's so cute. There's going to be a a judge and, you know, everything as well. So, yes, very cute. But anyway, just something a bit different and who knows, maybe uh, a Jetstar or, or Virgin are listening and they might be able to follow suit. Now let's move on to our giveaway this week. This is so exciting. I have the book here and I haven't started Mm -hmm. reading it yet, but I'm about to. It's next on my list. It's The Vanity Fair Diaries by Tina Brown and we have three copies to give away. Now, of course, People in the magazine industry, everyone in, in, everyone in the magazine industry knows Tina Brown because she It was an iconic figure or still is an iconic figure in the New York publishing scene for ages. Um, the Sizzling Diaries of Tina Brown's Eight Spectacular Years as Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair paint a riveting portrait of the flash, dash and follies of the 80s in New York and Hollywood. I bet you this gets made into a movie. There are inside stories of Vanity Fair scoops and covers that sold millions, the Reagan kiss, the meltdown of Princess Diana's marriage to Prince Charles, the sensational Annie Leibovitz cover of a gloriously pregnant naked Demi Moore and so on. Uh, Astute, open-hearted, often riotously funny, Tina Brown's The Vanity Fair Diaries is a compulsively fascinating and intimate chronicle of a woman's life in a glittering era. Now, the competition closes on the 12th of February. So make sure you go to writerscentre.com.au slash win in order to enter. Um, And that's uh, if you go there in the future because you're listening to this as a back catalogue, there'll be another competition for you to enter. But uh, The Vanity Fair Diaries by Tina Brown, au slash win.
1: That's a great one to win. I loved Vanity Fair back in the day.
2: It
1: was a fantastic magazine.
2: So fantastic and just mm-hmm. I used to pour over it and just slap mm. up every single word and the pictures at the time were so groundbreaking, weren't they? Mm, they were. But let us now move on to. Dun, dun, dun. Are you ready for the word of the week now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Val, I'm so ready. Okay. So I've been watching Netflix. I don't know if you've been, uh, if uh, you or our listeners have been watching this show called "Manhunt Unabomber," "Manhunt Colon Unabomber." It actually stars Sam Worthington as not mm. as the Unabomber, but as a detective, and um, it is obviously about the search for the Unabomber in America. And it is absolutely fascinating. Obviously, it's based on a true story. And the word that I got from this television series is idiolect. That's I-D-I-O-L-E-C-T, idiolect. Have you heard of that word? I have not. No, me either, actually. So it's uh, this word, um, I chose this word because it's inspired by Manhunt, And it is because the Unabomber was ultimately identified and caught because of his idiolect. And according to Wikipedia, this is an individual's distinctive and unique use of language, including speech. This unique usage encompasses vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation. So there are certain words and phrases that the Unabomber, Ted Krasinski, Used that in his manifesto and his uh, earlier letters in life that ultimately um, enabled him to be identified. There you go, mm. idiot. Let's, which is fascinating.
1: But let's just go back briefly to the fact that you're referencing Wikipedia for the I know. definition.
2: I know. Can we just have
1: a moment there? Okay. I'll have have a we moment. have we have we have we sort of taken it to the level where Wikipedia is now?
2: No. No. So,
1: but usually, I am looking. I am looking it up in other areas and it, it, that is actually what it means, everyone.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, here's the interesting thing. Usually I have a rule that I do not use any word of the week that isn't in the Macquarie, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but, and this is, word is not in the Macquarie. However, it is clearly a valid word that is being used it um, in many places. So that's why I felt it was okay to use. And in absence of the Macquarie, I know, I went to Wikipedia, which I know is not ideal. Mm. I was a bit lazy because I was watching Sam Worthington. Because mm. we would stuff. tell our freelance
1: journalists, yes, and our, our journalism students not to use Wikipedia Correct. as a that's span. right. Anyway.
2: Bad me. My only excuse. Naughty that I know. My only excuse is that I'm not actually writing a feature for a newspaper or magazine or online site. I'm just talking about Sam Worthington.
1: <laughs> okay. Wikipedia makes perfect sense then.
2: Yes. Right. Of <laughs> All right. Who is our writer in residence this week out?
1: Well, speaking of manhunts, I guess that's quite a good segue, really. Um, this week I interviewed Jack Heath. Now, one of the more interesting things about Jack is that on his website he says that Jack Heath is a pen name. So I was you know, all set with the question of why does, why does Jackie, you know, use a pen name? And then he admitted that he doesn't use a pen name. He just has that there to kind of throw people off the scent. So we oh were, you know, we were off to a great start, which you will hear when when, when you hear the interview. It was quite funny because I was just like, really? God. Um, But anyway, Jack um, writes um, for, well, mostly has written for children um, uh, with the 500 uh, Minutes of Danger series and a couple of, you know, choose your own adventure kind of things. And he's recently written his uh, or released his first adult novel, which is a crime novel. um, And it features a protagonist with quite an interesting predilection. And so we had a chat about you know, making that leap from you know writing for children to writing for adults, and also this particularly interesting angle that he's chosen to go with on his on his story. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Jack. Jack Heath is the best-selling author of more than twenty action-packed books for children and young adults. He wrote his first novel in high school, and it was published while he was still a teenager. Not that we're jealous. Since then, his work has been translated into several languages, shortlisted for many awards and optioned for film and television. His latest book, a disturbing crime novel called The Hangman, is his first for adults. So welcome to the program, Jack.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: All right. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning, to the mists of time, which is actually not that that sort of long ago for you, really. But how did your first novel come to be published?
0: Well, uh, so I started writing it when I was about 13, largely as a reaction against what I was being given to read in high school. The, uh, I thought the set texts were extremely dull. And at the, at the time, so the books we were reading were probably excellent books, but I certainly wasn't ready for them and, and they weren't the kind of thing I was interested in reading. So um, like most, uh, I suspect a lot of people get started in, in their job by just seeing someone else. Do it and go. Ah, oh, I could do better than that. How hard could it be? And it turns out it's really hard to write a novel. But but I I started that day and picked away at it after school and on weekends and in school holidays over the course of several years, and uh, and then I sent it to a publisher when I was seventeen. Um, I didn't have an agent or anything. Uh, I got picked out of a slush pile, and uh, by Pan Macmillan, and then I really learned to write during the editorial process so i i probably wasn't a very good writer when i submitted the novel but by the time it came out two years later after we'd exchanged drafts back and forth over and over and over again i um i'd, I'd learned uh, a little bit about how to tell an exciting story so um uh, after that i knew i loved it i knew i wanted to to do it for a living i couldn't imagine Ever not writing, even if no one was paying me to do it. So I've uh, I've kind of built my whole life around that since then.
1: Okay, so what what was that first novel? And like, what did it feel like? You're 17 years old, and you get this call saying we're going to publish your book.
0: <laughs> I um I there was some dancing involved. Uh, I believe there was cackling, uh, insane cackling, as my younger brother described it at the time. I think. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that, it was hugely, hugely exciting. But again, when you're a when you're a teenager, no disrespect to teenagers, but you don't know what's normal, really. I um, so it, it all seemed a bit surreal. But that ad, at that age, everything seems a bit strange and surreal. It was only kind of really later in my life, um, in my mid twenties, when uh, you know Borders and Angus and Robertson collapsed, and there weren't as many distribution chains for novels. Suddenly, I started finding it difficult to to find publishers for manuscripts. And it was only kind of when I got to that stage that I started to truly appreciate just how special my big break had been um, when I was 17 to 19. Um, life got much harder after that. Um, it's gotten easier again since then, but, um, but I, uh, I don't allow myself to forget how lucky I was.
1: Ah, Excellent. Now, Jack Heath is actually a pen name. So why did you go with a pen name rather than your real name?
0: Uh, can I tell you a secret it's actually my real name (laughs) it
1: um, says on your website it's a pen name Jack
0: I know I know it does one of my few regrets in uh, in my career is not having written under a pen name I've met a lot of who uh who write under a pseudonym and they seem firstly they seem to have really good work-life balance like, you know, the, uh, from nine to five, I'm Jeff Lindsay from, um, you know, after hours and on weekends, I'm whatever Jeff Lindsay's real name is. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and
0: They, they seem to, I don't know. I, I feel like it, it helps the, the writer be separate from the person in a way that I've always kind of envied. Um, but it's too late for me to start writing under a pen name now, because then that's like starting again. Right. I, I'd, I'd have to, um, I'd have to build up my audience all over again. So instead I do the next best thing and just tell people that Jack Heath is my (laughs)
1: main name. And I fell for it. Oh, no, the poor journalist fell for it.
0: It it does also help. I mean, sorry, I I apologise. It's not designed to trick journalists, Um, but it does also mean – that uh, because I, I write primarily for children, I, I have a lot of young readers, and it means that they don't go you know looking for me on on Facebook or whatever on my private Facebook page or uh, it, it means it sort of puts a wall between myself and the reader, um, which keeps things it, it keeps a professional boundary there that I like.
1: Yeah, which you kind and of awareness. need when you're writing for children too, don't you because there, there is that element of um, if they love you they really love you don't they
0: yeah that's exactly right particularly teenagers i found um uh, sort of preteens a, a little bit easier to handle um uh, from from that angle but but yeah teenage teenage fans can be intense <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay let's leave that there um now your books for kids and young adults are you you know kind of like as you said you were looking for more exciting books when you were younger yourself. So you write a lot of sort of fast-paced thrillers. You have the um, choose-your-own-ending kind of thing going with some of them. What what is it about the genre that sort of – what is it about thrillers that attracted you in the first place?
0: Um, I think I've spent – when you look at – Classic novels. Um, this is this is what I tell um, kids sometimes. When you look at classic novels, you can tell that if it was written a hundred years ago, if it was a rainy day and the reader was literate, they had a choice between either reading that book or just kind of staring out the window, watching the raindrops on the pane. Mm-hmm. That's not the case anymore. These mm-hmm. days, I, um, uh, on on a rainy day, you have limitless options for ways to fill your time. Which means that in order to to win a reader over uh things do need to be thrilling and exciting and intense your a, a book these days shouldn't be just you know a time killer um because people have endless ways to to kill time it's it's got to be um it's got to be a story that that keeps them eager and and hooked so writing for kids has taught me to to respect the reader's time i guess this is something that um that i think was helpful when i was writing for adults too but so i grew up in an environment where I, um, I, didn't, I loved books. I'd had a terrible ear infection when I was in about year five and missed a lot of school and consequently read a lot of books. Um, but all my friends were into video games and movies and TV shows and these other uh, fast-paced, high-action, um, you know, limited attention span type things. And I didn't see any reason that a book couldn't be equally exciting. In mm-hmm. fact, a book could be more exciting because you don't have budget constraints you don't have producers you don't have to deal with insurance or stunt people or clean up the mess after you've made one you (laughs) just do whatever you want so I I guess I I gravitated towards thrillers just because um it seemed like there was I didn't put it in this these terms at the time but it seemed like there was a gap in the market it seemed like books could be more exciting than they were Mm. and uh so I, I resolved to write to that particular wrong. Although, of course, I wasn't the only one with the same idea. Matthew Riley, at about that time, also um, hit Australian shelves. And, uh, and so he kind of paved the way for me, in a sense, because nice. his publisher. Uh, so it was a right place, right time thing. Uh, Matthew Riley's books had been very, very successful, and then the publisher was looking for someone who was writing similarly high octane, high action stuff, but maybe without uh, without all the curse coarse language, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, it could appeal to a younger demographic. And then uh, then I just happened to submit my manuscript at exactly the right moment.
1: Okay. So, what do you think are some of the things that aspiring writers need to keep in mind to write successful thrillers like are there kind of you know rules or is it just do what yeah well
0: um I mean I, I think you should always uh follow your instincts when it's working but when it's not working there are a few different ways you could uh look at trying to fix it um firstly I always try to do more than one thing at a time like if there's a single sentence in the uh in the manuscript which is only performing one function um then it should probably be removed everything uh has to if I'm describing the layout of a room for instance I'm not just doing that so as the reader can picture it I'm also planting clues about the things that will happen in the room later on or if I'm describing a character's outfit uh that's not just um for visual flavor it's also for kind of giving uh, giving the reader the impression of the kind of character that they are uh so ultimately writing thrillers is no different from writing anything else editing thrillers though involves a whole heap of the delete key uh-huh. you are, you are looking for anything that can be removed basically if you can remove anything without uh, without it changing the story in some major way, then you should, because everything that is there has to be important. Okay. I think that's the same
1: thing. Do you then? So, from that perspective, do you are your first drafts longer? I mean, are you sort of? because like the way i write i tend to my my first drafts are essentially you know like the almost an outline of the story and then i have to go back and add stuff in whereas do you have to overwrite and then cut stuff back or how does it like in the sense of um, making sure you're hitting a word count that you need to hit
0: yeah well uh, again i've i've learned this as i as i go along but so uh, my my first novel the lab what came, it was 95,000 words and eventually it came down to 70 Right.
1: Um,
0: or maybe it was 90 and then it came down to 70. But actually I submitted it to the publisher when it was about 40,000 words long. And then they told me that, that a, a book was typically at least 80 because I didn't realize I was writing teenage fiction. So I expanded it out to 90 and then they said, oh, this looks more like teen fiction. Maybe you could strip it back down to 70. So I did. <laughs> um, but these days, uh so i jackie french had she wrote a book that i read when i was a kid called now hang on let me get this right how aliens from alpha centauri invaded my maths class and turned me into a writer and how you can be one too (laughs) um which uh which made a strong impression on me and one of the things that it talked about was the fat thin method so basically you you write your story and you include everything you possibly can, you make, you make the book as fat as it can possibly be and then you do another draft where you strip out everything you possibly can and make it as thin as it can possibly be and then you do another fat one and then another thin one and then another fat one and it becomes a kind of filtration process uh, and so I think that's a good method but most recently I've learned that you can actually be doing both things at the same time so every draft I do um, until we get to kind of the final copy editing stage as I'm writing whenever I think of something that I could put in I put it in and then whenever I see something that I could take out I take it out but because I do that with every draft so things are constantly getting put in put in and taken out and put in and taken out and that does make it a bit easier to meet um, suitable word counts with yeah. children's word counts are really important. Yes. So uh, for example, my, my big series for kids is probably the one that I've done for Scholastic, uh, 300 Minutes of Danger was the uh, was the sort of breakout one. So I've done several books in that franchise now. And each of them is supposed to be exactly 38,000 words long. So not 40, not 35, uh, 38 is is the right number of thousands of words to have in those books. Wow. So that means that because I've got the little word count ticker at the bottom, as I'm adding things in, taking them out, adding things in, taking them out. I'm always keeping an eye on that word count thingy down the bottom so as I know that uh, I, I get a feel for kind of whether I should be looking for more things to include or looking for things to take out based on that word count. Hmm.
1: Well, you actually have a couple of different series for children and young adults. Is it, Do you have a favourite to write among the, you know, the options uh, you have?
0: I'm very easily swayed by public opinion, so I uh, whenever a, a book is getting good sales and good reviews, I um, I go, oh wow, yep, yeah, that that was a great book. I'm I'm really pleased. And whenever something you know underperforms in some way, I, I go, oh well, it probably wasn't very good anyway. <laughs> um, so, but uh, I really enjoyed writing the um, the the danger series, three hundred minutes. And, and its sequels and its choose-your-own-adventure-style spin-offs, uh, mostly because uh, there's just so much. So they're difficult to write because the choose-your-own-ending ones have 30 different endings per book. So that's a lot of ideas that I have to, to burn through. And the minutes of danger ones are books of short stories. The stories are connected. There's a conspiracy to unravel, but but each one has to stand on its own as well. And so that has uh, that's been it's my favorite series, probably just because it's been so challenging. Mm. I've had really on my toes all the time about coming up with new things that I haven't used, new dangerous situations that I can put kids in and clever ways to get them out again. And it does mean that, um, uh, I think writing short stories is a really great way to hone your craft. Um, as, as a writer, I'm, very grateful that I spent so much of my teenage years writing short stories in addition to writing my first novel because I learned something from each one. Mm-hmm. So I think the Danger series has made me, so it's it's my favorite series, not just because it's been selling so well, but because it actually made me a better writer because it kind of took me back to my short story roots and taught me uh, well, taught me a whole bunch of things about how to quickly establish a character and, uh, and a, a setting and, um, and without slowing the plot down, all that stuff.
1: Yeah. So given, like, th- given that you're writing 30 different endings for a choose your own adventure style book and <laughs> given that you're doing all these short stories, I have to assume you're a writer who does a lot of plotting before you write. Is that, would, it, would that be correct? uh
0: yes and no i i generally have sorry
1: <laughs> i knew you were gonna uh, say that
0: yeah yeah well so for example at the moment i'm writing a uh, another series for scholastic that i can't talk about very much but mm. i wrote a uh, a pitch which came complete with um chapter by chapter a chapter-by-chapter chapter synopsis of what was going to happen in each of the books. And then kind of at the last minute when I was about due to start writing, um, someone uh, someone in at the publishing end said, uh, what we've because of sales of a different series, we're looking for something a bit different now. Instead of these five books being an ongoing story, we want each one to be a standalone. And instead of each of them being about a different main character, we want them all to be about the same kid to get a... Um, uh, so they wanted the through line to be the, the character rather than the plot. Uh-huh. So that really meant I had to completely chuck out the synopsis that I'd written and start again. Wow. Which but I didn't start again in terms of writing new synopsis. I just went, well, I'll just start writing and see how I go. So I'm not uh, I'm not unfamiliar with that form of exploratory writing, the kind of make it up as you go along the pantsing method. The pan- um <laughs> is that what it's
1: called dancing is it going yeah
0: Yeah. and uh but i find it does work better if i um if i do some some fairly careful plotting at the beginning uh but to be clear my plot is always a safety net it's more like a safety net than it is a map Mm. because the best ideas are always the ones that come to me as i'm writing the story so if i have if i have a plot that means i don't get stuck uh, but i don't let it um, determine what I'm actually going to write. I just uh, lean on it a bit more on the days when I'm not feeling inspired. And typically I start with and I I have a beginning in mind, I have an ending in mind and I have a crucial scene in the middle and then I I write the beginning, I write the middle, and then I realize that the ending I planned out isn't going to work. So uh-huh. I write a different ending and then I realize that the beginning I wrote doesn't fit with the ending that I now have. so I rewrite the beginning. So typically the middle is the only bit that stays the same.
1: Fantastic. All right. So how many projects are you, cause I know you're working on something new and your email auto response told me that. So I'm hoping that's true and not disinformation like right your to. website, but how many projects do you actually work on at a time?
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, do just want to say it's a good idea to get an out of office auto reply and leave it switched on all the time. That increases your productivity so much. Good, yeah. good tip, writers. Um, but I, so, as far as uh, how many projects I'm working on at a given time go, um, I'll usually have. Uh, well, right now I'm working on a five book series for Scholastic, so it's middle grade action adventure for kids, um, and I'm also co writing a four book series with uh, with Cosentino, the magician. So oh, of this course. is an illustrated series for for slightly younger kids. Um, but uh, all four of those are written. Uh, sorry, I'm counting my fingers as I'm talking to you. Uh, all four of those are written, but uh, two of them still need some editing before they come out. Right. Um, I also have to write the sequel to Hangman, so that's a, an adult novel. Yes, a- and Scholastic has said that they're interested in more um, in more danger books. At least one more. And there's also a sci-fi sort of young adult teen novel which I've written but still needs some editing, which I need to find the time to do somewhere along the way. So I basically got twelve books on the go, minus the two that I've uh, that I've already written but haven't um, come out yet, and everything else is at some various stage of either written but not edited or plotted but not written. Or something like that. So yeah, about ten books.
1: And what's the time frame on those projects? Is that all to be done for two thousand and
0: eighteen? It all needs to be done by June, I think. Hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's, okay. it's a lot of work um, and I don't want to pretend that I'm some kind of amazing, productive machine and that, oh, yeah, it's all got to be done by June, but but that's nothing. It's not nothing. It's a lot of work. <laughs> what, so uh, is there a
1: typical day for Jack then? We're given I mean, that's a lot of writing slash editing slash tearing your hair out.
0: I used to have, oh yeah, my, well, I'm certainly going gray. I I still have all the hair. (laughs) The the stress is doing things to the color. Um, So a typical day will be that I'll, um, I'll, I'll drag myself out of bed. I'll, bed. I'll make breakfast for my son. I'll, I'll take him to school. I'll, I'll try to get back to my desk by 9.00 AM. And then I write until lunchtime. And then after lunch, I, I write some more and I usually call it quits at kind of three or four in the afternoon because, um, because I get to the point where I'm just kind of staring at the screen or, and thinking about other things, you know, your, your mm-hmm. concentration does eventually get sapped, but I, uh, I'm pretty good about managing to write 2000 words a day. That's, mm-hmm generally um what I can do I did uh NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month a few years ago in 2012 um I wrote a book called The Cutout which which later became pretty successful which is lucky most NaNoWriMo books don't don't end up getting published or doing anything but the value of NanoRIMO to me wasn't doing that it was forcing myself to write 1,667 words a day every day for for 30 days once once you've had an experience like that um suddenly I was doing one book a year for, for most of my twenties. Now that seems unaccountably lazy. I, uh, uh, <laughs> no no disrespect to anyone who is still writing that way, but it's uh, it's a good idea to challenge yourself to be able to to work faster and faster. But anyway, about two thousand words a day is pretty typical for me. Editing is a little bit more difficult to measure. The mm-hmm. metrics are harder because yeah. I go, hey, this book is two hundred pages long. I have um, five days to edit it, so. I guess I can edit 40 pages a day but but you don't know exactly how much I do a lot of jumping around when I'm editing as well I'll yeah. be reading a scene and I'll go oh hang on this would work much better if I had planted a clue several chapters ago so I jump back and do that and then jump forward again to change the ending now that now that it doesn't need as much explanation as it used to and so, yeah, editing's hard to measure, but the writing I try to do 2,000 words a day and that usually takes me about five hours.
1: Okay. All right. So, speaking of challenges, you've now, like you've, you've, you've established yourself very successfully in children's and YA. Why have you now branched into adult fiction? Is that a challenge for yourself as a writer or is that, you know, and, and has it been difficult to do in the sense of, you know, here's Jack Heath going, well, I'm going to write for adults now?
0: Yes. Uh, the book itself was a challenge for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, primarily to do with the main character, but we'll talk about that in a second, we I will. guess. yes.
1: <laughs> we will.
0: Uh, Well, so I actually started writing my first book for adults in 2008 and it was this book. So I had this idea, I couldn't let it go, it kept going round and round and round in my head and I thought, look, I've got to write this thing. And crime fiction, I think it's always a good idea for for writers to write the kind of book that they would like to read. And I've always been an avid crime reader. So I always wanted to go in this direction. Um, Unfortunately, so I started writing the draft in 2008. I uh, finished it in 2010 or maybe 2011. And then I presented it to my publisher and they wanted nothing to do with it. And so then, and I didn't want to move away from that publisher. So I kind of just put it in the drawer as a failed experiment. I'd, can it I just out of my interrupt
1: head. briefly? Did they want nothing to do with it because it was not your usual thing or because of that particular book?
0: Uh, I think it, it would have been a variety of factors. Mm. So one would have been that, uh, that you know, it would have been easier at that point to sell another Jack Heath children's book than it would have been to sell a, a Jack Heath adult book because um, – uh, I hadn't. I wasn't as well established then as I am now. That now there's a whole bunch of kids who read my first book back in 2006 who've grown up to become adults, and ah, so of they're kind of ready for an adult book. But that market wasn't there back in 2010. Yeah. And uh, also, there was sort of industry-wide shocks. Um, Amazon was strangling booksellers, and uh, and Borders yeah. and Agassiz and Robert collapsed, and so- and all that. It was hard to sell anything, much less something that was going to be controversial. And yes, the book was controversial. It wasn't just a crime novel. It was a fairly grisly crime novel um, with a main character who who could have been deemed not especially likable. And in addition to all that, uh, the fact is that the book, I'm very, very proud of Hangman now, but back in 2010, um, it, it was more ambitious than... Than I could do as a writer at that time. Right. So it helped that I wrote the book, and then I wrote more than ten other books for kids and learned a whole heap of writing techniques. And then came back to edit Hangman. Mm. And so the concept is the same, mm. but I'm a better writer now. I can I can make the reader like this in in a way that I just didn't know how to do back then.
1: All right, so let's talk about Timothy Blake, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, as a, as a reader of crime fiction, which our listenership knows that I, I really enjoy, um, I'm really interested in the premise of this book. And I love the, you know, I've, I've read the blurb, I've read the reviews, um, but I am somewhat put off by Timothy Blake. And as you say, he's unlikable uh, to a degree. He has a particular predilection. T- tell us about how you came up with this guy.
0: Well, there were like any good idea. There were a few different sources of it. Uh, one was that I really liked Twenty Four, um, right. which kind of dates the, uh, the the creativity a little bit. But yep. the uh, what I really liked about Twenty Four was that. Almost always the interesting part of the story was Jack Bauer doing evil things Mm. uh, in order to create good results, so Mm. for the greater good. And 24, you know, people remember it as an action show, but there wasn't really that much action in it. Mostly it was just arguments about ethics. And uh, my mum taught philosophy at the University of Wollongong. Uh, so ethics and philosophy is a big part of, uh, certainly it was a big part of dinner table conversation. And it's something that I'm endlessly fascinated by. So I wanted to write a book where the main character um, was a terrible person, but where the the results of all his actions were good. and But he didn't have good intentions necessarily. I'm interested in what makes a person's value. Is it their intentions? Is it their actions? Or is it the results of their actions? Because his actions are bad. His intentions are bad. But he feels guilt and and shame and the net result of society. Uh, Anyway, I started thinking about a cannibal detective, basically. I thought, what if there was a, a person who was good at solving crimes, so good that the police department had come to depend on him? Uh, but that his price would be that any time he solved a crime which result, result, resulted in saving someone's life, so he, he's not just a detective, he rescues kidnapped children. Uh, so that's very noble, but his price is for every life he saves, he saves, he is given a death row inmate to eat. And I was also interested in capital punishment too. So it it, uh, it played into a lot of my own sort of weird fascinations, and uh, and like I said, I couldn't get it out of my head.
1: Um, <coughs> You're a bit easy. taken aback. Well, no, no, I'm just, when you said I couldn't get it out, I'm just wondering what it's like in your head sometimes. I'm just
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if this will come out sounding defensive, but I actually, um, I'm not a strong stomach person. I basically faint at the sight of blood. Ah. Uh, if you come at me with a... Um, with a needle. Like I'm okay with, uh, uh, what do you call it? Vaccinations. They're fine. But I used to be, I was once a a regular blood donor. I thought that was a good thing to do, but eventually I developed some kind of, um, some kind of mental problem where as soon as the needle went in, even before I'd lost any blood, I would just immediately lose consciousness. And I've been known to read other people's crime novels and faint, uh, while reading the novel. And in one case, I actually vomited. So I am, uh, I, I'm very... <laughs> that is so hilarious. And yet you're sensitive. sitting there
1: with it all coming out of your own head.
0: Well, that's right. I'm kind of facing my fears. I, I find my novels often come from a thing that scares me. And usually once uh, once I've written a book about something, I don't worry about it so much anymore so the hangman was kind of a challenge to myself to make something as as gruesome as i possibly could because i was a big fan of uh the cleaner by paul cleave and zombie by joyce carol Oates and um uh i don't know american psycho by brad easton ellis and a bunch of other you know really confronting crime novels yeah um But it was also a challenge to myself as a writer to use all the techniques I knew how to do to get the reader to sympathise with someone who otherwise wouldn't be at all sympathetic.
1: Which is a really, I mean, it is a challenge, isn't it? I mean, to create a character with enough complexity and dimensions for people to actually um, go there with you, take the journey, read the book, etc. How did you create the character like did he come to you over many many years in the sense of i know you said you started the process back in 2010 but has he changed and evolved as that has gone along
0: um uh, this is this is going to sound pretentious but it doesn't feel like he's changed at all but it feels like i understand him better as as though he's been revealed to me rather ah, than okay. created by me and I, I am not the sort of writer who normally has uh, generally i consider my characters to be puppets they do what i tell them to do and if um and they they perform their function in in the plot and i try to make them as convincing to the reader as possible but they never convince me that every once in a while a character comes along who just feels so real to me that i uh that and en- that I never need to think about it for more than a fraction of a second as to what would they do in this situation. I just know. And Timothy Blake was one of those. He, um, he came to me sort of fully formed, but I think, uh, his, uh, his very, very early development came from the fact that, uh, I knew that I wanted him to do terrible things, but I also knew that I didn't want, I didn't want him to be especially, I could have made him, you know, a rapist or a pedophile or something, but those people actually exist and they're actually out there. Mm -hmm. Whereas cannibalism is so far removed from anyone's actual experience that, uh, that I didn't think the reader would feel too guilty for sympathizing with him. Mm -hmm. Um, that, That was a part of it. I also knew that to make a, uh, an unlikable character likable they have to suffer for their sins quite a lot yeah. not only after the fact but also beforehand yeah. so i gave him uh, an incredibly grim past but also a fairly grim future cuz the reader the reader won't like him if they feel like he's really getting away with it yeah. and i also gave him a number of kind of selfless acts throughout the story so he's a terrible person who's done terrible things but Hears him doing just this one good thing at great cost to himself, but that benefits someone else. And uh, so, I was basically he—he was a composite of all the tricks I knew about how to make a character likable. And then that made him feel very real in my head. But all that was back in 2008. So I've been—I've been living with him in my head for a long time now. Uh, So he feels very real to me.
1: Okay, so it's one thing to to write that book and it's one thing to create that character and it's one thing but then you have to convince people to to read it so with as far as <laughs> yeah. you know as far as your um your, what how do you promote your books like what kind of methods are you do you use to get your work out there to get people talking about it you know that kind of stuff
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, until very recently I worked in a, um, in a bookshop. Um, I started out there working three days a week and then my writing took off a bit more. So I moved down to two days a week and then, uh, I sold a few more books and then moved down to one day a week and and now I've finally quit. But what I got pretty good at was, uh, being quickly pitching my novels to people. So I would always reveal who I was. I <laughs> I wasn't saying, oh, Margaret Atwood, no, I think you mean Jack Heath. Write this one. <laughs> <way. laughs> um but I would whenever I came across a potential reader for one of my books, you know, they seem to be about the right age and looking for the right kind of thing. I would say, well, yeah, uh, I, I have actually written this book right here, uh, here's a quick pitch of the plot. Here's a quick um, uh, synopsis of, of the other things that it's similar to. Um, so what I'm getting at is that I actually think in-person interactions with readers are the best possible way to sell books. There's I, I've done some stuff online, um, but I don't have a huge marketing budget or, or anything like that. I used to try to make book trailers myself and I, uh, I would spend um, spend money on Facebook ads and, and stuff like that. I, d- I don't do much of that stuff anymore except for fun. I've found that by far the best way Uh, is to visit bookstores in person and talk to the booksellers. It's a good idea to to give them an idea that I'm coming. I I send an email ahead of time to say, hey, I will be in town on this date. Would you like me to come in and sign some stock and... Yeah. uh, and have a chat because, because uh, having booksellers who actually know about you and know about your books really does improve sales, I think. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I take every opportunity to do a reading or do a, a signing or to, um, to visit a school when it comes to selling, um, kids book, I have a speaking agency booked out who gets me into a lot of schools. And I, I think that's well worth doing. Yeah. Uh, and as far as, online promotion stuff goes, I still do it, but now I focus on responding to the people who actually contact me. So wow. it's the difference between uh, broadcasting and engagement, I mm-hmm. guess. So I don't I don't spend much time posting things anymore, but whenever someone posts a comment on something that I do post, I always uh, thank them and, and reply and get in touch and and all those things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think th- the only tip i really have for selling books is to try to win over readers one at a time yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you try to do hundreds at once uh, chances are you won't get through to anybody
1: okay all right well let's wrap up now that we're getting into tips which is always a good thing well um our last question for our author interviews is always what are your top three tips for aspiring authors so jack over to you
0: uh Number one, read everything you possibly can. Um, I I know everyone knows that, but I really do, do need to reiterate it because that's that's by far the most important thing. It'll give you good instincts. Uh, two, I think it's a good idea to join your local writer centre. Yeah, if you have a local not-for-profit writer centre because they can give you um, advice on, well, you can do actual workshops. And to get it better at any skill, you need training and you need sorry, you need practice and you need feedback. And for writing practice is easy to get feedback is very, very difficult. And the, the the writer center can be, um, can be helpful with that. And tip number three, try to get a good agent. (laughs) I, um, I never got anywhere until I got a good agent and, uh, So, just to to bring back to, I know we're at the tips bit and I know you've got to go, but to bring it back to Hangman for a second, I told you that I wrote the book, my publisher didn't want it, I put it in a drawer and completely gave up on it, but my agent did not give up on it. So, she was. Um, submitting it to other people and collecting rejections and not just rejections but getting feedback that I could usefully use to transform the book and she was the one who eventually found a publisher for this thing that in the past no one had wanted to touch so uh, yeah read everything join your writer center and get an agent if you can.
1: Fantastic all right well thank you so much for your time today Jack we really appreciate it best of luck with that all those many, many projects that you're working on. And um, I will read Hangman. You've convinced me that I need to get in there and and, uh, engage with Timothy Blake. So I'll look forward to the read.
0: (laughs) Bon (laughs) appétit.
2: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, Become a Children's Author, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. Okay, Jack Heath. Wow, that was a great interview. He's written a lot of books.
1: Well, you know, it's it was just a really interesting conversation because I, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who you know, you get every you, you meet so many teenagers who say, Oh, I'm I could do better than this, so I'm so gonna write a book and actually yeah. wrote one and yes. then it got pulled out of the slush pile and then it got published and you know, it's just That's sort just of like stupid. he's had one of those he's had one of those sort of rides in publishing, which is really an unusual thing, but he's so busy at the moment. Like it's like it's like all of that sort of work that he's done has just all come to fruition in the last couple of years and he's just got, you know, book after book after book coming out. So yeah, it was interesting and um very, very interesting um conversation I thought. So I hope you guys all really enjoyed it.
2: Fantastic. All right. So we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Well, I'll be writing a book with Al, obviously, because that's my
1: main focus at the moment. But I'm also, yeah, I'm working on a few different things. I'm writing a feature um, and I am, uh, what, I'm just looking at my diary. I've got lots of interviews
2: to do this week. I've got lots of stuff happening. Um, what about you? What are you doing? I need to sleep more and eat less sugar. Okay. Basically. <laughs> Right, <laughs> because I've been doing eight hours in my day job, then eight hours painting. You know, on my oh, art I job. That
1: you had heaps of um, painting, like you, you've been putting quite a lot up lately. So I assume there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes. But so,
2: what's brought yes. that on? Why the well, sudden th- burst? I don't know. Because well, three AM sleeps because I was do- deluding myself into thinking, yeah, I can just do both, but. You get burnt out. Yeah,
1: no, you do, you do get burnt out. You really do. So yeah. how, how, what are you going to do? How's the painting work balance
2: going <laughs> to work out for you? Well, I need to, yeah, I need to basically reassess that because I was going hard basically around eight hours and eight hours and base, that meant sleeping at um, 3 a.m. And... Mm. I, because I used to do that, you know, 10 years ago. But hey, <laughs> I'm not that young anymore.
1: I can see since. where this is going.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so it seems that even though I can f- do that, I pay for it a lot sooner than I used to. So Just you doesn't mean mm, you should talk exactly, about this but Yeah. Exactly. Bad. Anyway, so that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to. um attempt to eat less sugar that's all
1: okay well that's you know that's doable we can do that
2: no more caramel slices for me
1: caramel slices
2: yeah i know that's been a a recent thing has that been your thing recently only from a very specific shop because not every like many places don't get it right at all i went to a cafe the other day I went to a cafe the other day and I asked for a caramel slice. This is probably useful in putting me off them. And she gave it to me, but she microwaved it first. What? I know. And I'm like, I don't think you're meant to microwave these. And she said, yes, we are told to microwave all cakes. It was a chain. And I'm like, you're not really meant to microwave caramel slices. It's just not what you do. Oh, it was awful. Anyway, um, I digress. I digress. Where do we find you online now? <laughs> 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 well,
1: clearly now I need a caramel slice, but you'll find
2: me at alisontait.com,
1: dot T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A L T A I T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And if you would like to join me in writing a book, just jump on the hashtag Write a Book with Al on any of those channels and you will find me. What about you, Val?s yes.
2: What are you'll you? Where do we find you? you? At Valerie Cood. That's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, feel free to connect with me on Facebook as well. And you'll find both of us in the podcast community. Just search for so you want to be a Writer.com. No, just search for so you want to be a writer <laughs> podcast community on Facebook. And you'll find <laughs> Val on the hashtag <laughs> needs more sleep. Yes, that's right. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.